you know, I think that can give us hope. And when we realize mm -hmm. that it's not about us, it's not about me, it's about this child and God's purpose for him. And God always wants us to showcase himself. And so when our child and our attitude and our actions showcase God, then we are successful. You're listening to the Reframing Ministries podcast, providing help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through pain. Here's our host, Colleen Swindoll Thompson. Hi, my name is Colleen Swindoll Thompson, and it's my joy to introduce Lisa Simmons. Welcome, Lisa, to our talk today. Hello. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. As we're recording, this is going to be for Autism Awareness Month, but it certainly is not limited to an autism conversation. Um, Lisa is an author who has written a book called I Would Say Yes. She also has a bachelor's degree in elementary education and in psychology. She has worked with learning disabled students in Denton, is a board member on the Lifesavers Foundation, which I'm going to read here is a nonprofit organization, faith-based, and it exists to empower, engage, equip, encourage, and educate mothers and young children through the Dr. Spot Community Mobile Sonogram and Upscale Resale Store in Richardson, Texas. Did I get that right, Lisa? Yes. Yeah, it's a mouthful. We've, we've added a few more um, things, so yes. That's wonderful. Um, I want us to start out as we begin our discussion with your history and what, what led to where you are today. The beginning of your book starts with this quote, which I love. Every parent dreams that their child will grow up to change the world. No one says, I hope my child will just grow up and sit on the couch and watch TV all day <laughs> or play video games. No one says, if my child could just make C's and D's in school, that would just be fine with me. I hope my, I hope my son or my daughter sits on the bench for whatever support. Never do we say that. We want our children to be a star in one way or another and not just average. Many have that desire. And yet your story starts very differently. Why don't you take us back many years ago? Yes, in fact, it was uh, 30 years ago this Saturday. Um, my, my son Daniel was born January 24th in, um, in 1985. And it was a, a very tumultuous time for us. Um, at the time we had just my husband had just taken a new job, although he hadn't started yet, um, in Dallas. And we were living in South Arkansas, where I had grown up and had never left. So I was a little nervous. Um, I had a three-year-old son and now a newborn. And um, it, was, it was just kind of a very scary, but we were excited at the same time to kind of take off on this adventure. But um, there was something in me that said something's not right. I don't know why, um, but as soon as they put Daniel in my arms, I just looked at his face and he had this concerned look mm -hmm. on, his, on his brow that was just sort of furrowed. 
And it was as if he were saying, I don't know what just happened, but I don't think I like it. Of course, I think a lot of babies may be thinking that. <laughs> it was just, it was so concerning to me. Um, but I didn't say anything because, you know, every mother, I think, has some of that worry that, oh my goodness, what if, you know, what if something's wrong? Um, but I had no reason to really think that. It was just in in me. Yes. And it was just, um, it was probably a couple of months before I really, um, I started to think it more seriously because he was not doing those milestones that babies do. You know, at two, three, four months, he still was not holding his head up. Um, he wasn't rolling over when he was supposed to, all those mm. things. Finally, about eight months, I asked the doctor. I, I just had just such a feeling that something was wrong. And, and he just assured me that I was only comparing him with Justin, our three-year-old, and I shouldn't do that. And every baby's different. And he was following the the scale, although he was at the very end of the scale. You know, if they're supposed to roll over at, you know, four months, he was maybe five, you know, five and a half months. So he was still kind of in the range of everything just at the end. Um, so that just start, sort of started my journey of, of listening and looking for what I could do. Now, was he fussy? Was he colicky? Was he some of those other symptoms that we often know now about? I, I would say, you know, he had colic like a lot of babies just in the early uh, months and stuff. But the, the thing that really that stood out to me was that every single time we got in the car, he screamed the entire time. <laughs> And this was from coming home from the hospital. I mean, it was it was immediately. And, you know, most babies, a lot of people drive around right. with their baby to, to go to sleep, to calm down. And that just did not work with Daniel. In fact, by the time he was probably six or seven months old, if he saw that we were walking toward the car, <laughs> he would start kicking and screaming like, no, don't put me in there again. <laughs> And I, you know, um, I don't know why it bothered him. I still don't know why, but something about the, the noise, the vibration, something he didn't like. Well, you know, that's very similar to what I experienced was all the colic and the crying and not ever knowing. And that gut feeling of, I think there's something wrong, but I can't right. put my hands on it. And right. of course, 30 years ago, there was the belief that autism was not even really a, a word. In fact, I yeah. mean, it was because it was introduced years ago, but yeah, right. it was, a you know, kind of considered by psychologists as the refrigerator mom. You know, if you're a cold yes. mom or distant, yes. or not attaching. And yes. of course, that's crazy now, but we didn't, we didn't default to what do we need to be looking for on these milestones. Right. So you continued right. to press on. Yes. And I did go through those same thoughts, even though I'd never read anything. I'd never heard the word autism at that time, but I, I began to blame myself. Mm. Um, you know, my, I had gone through my maternal grandmother died when Daniel was a week old. My mother died when he was six weeks old. 
And I had moved away from everything I knew, you know, moving from Arkansas to Dallas. So I, I thought, well, it's my fault. I'm, I'm depressed. I'm sad. I don't smile enough. I don't talk to him enough. I'm tired, you know, all of those things. So it must be my fault. And I literally remember making myself smile at him yeah. because I was so sad, you know, having come through all of those things. Um, but I would look at him and make myself, even it was fake, I said, I'm going to let him see me smile because his face always had this concerned look. Oh. He, you know, he just didn't um, smile that much. So I thought he's just mimicking me. Right. He's just doing what I'm doing. Life doesn't stop, does it? No, no. <laughs> I mean, it just keeps going. And I mean, the grief, you didn't have any time to grieve, but at the same time you had these children and- You have to keep going. Yes. You have to move. So where was Ron in the whole situation? Well, I never said anything to him, uh, the fears that I had. I, I just I just kept it to myself because really I was afraid to say it out loud. Um, I thought if I said it out loud, that would make it true. And as long as I didn't, then maybe it wasn't true. And maybe it was just my imagination. So, you know, Ron had just started a new job um, again, you know, in Dallas. And he was working really hard to to establish himself and, and that's what dads do, you know, and it was, he probably didn't notice it or at least he didn't say anything, you know, because he wasn't there all day with uh, the kids like I was. And, um, but it was, it was a little bit later. It was probably when Daniel was around two and a half that he said something and it made me feel bad. And I know his t intention wasn't to make me feel bad, but of course that's what moms do. They, they take all the, the guilt and the blame. And uh, we had a friend whose son was one day younger than Daniel. So their birthdays were one day apart. And he was just off the charts, you know, talking and walking and do it, you know, doing all the things um, that a two or two and a half year old should be doing. And Daniel just wasn't doing those things. And um, so he said, I just don't think you work with him as much as you did with Justin. So I thought, okay, that, okay, yes, that's probably it. I'm, I'm not doing enough. And <laughs> although I'm depressed and I've just lost very important people in my life. And I, <laughs> I took that on, you know, I took it on as it's still my fault. It's still my fault. And I think even today with all of the information that we have, I still think moms do that. They take on that guilt that something about this situation is my fault. And so I must be the one to fix it. And th that can cause a lot of depression and just a lot of um, angst and guilt um, when you do that to yourself. And Well, I know you and Ron work together really well. And so I know that the comment, let's put it in context for those who are hearing, is was probably one of a thousand positive. He probably just said, well, maybe you need to do more as a suggestion. <laughs> what did you do or what do you do with what if or what, what can I do? So many mothers, me included, continue to struggle with that guilt. What do you, how, let's speak to that for a moment, which is not anywhere in our notes, but it's vital. 
Yeah, it is. And I, I tell moms all the time, because even if you don't have a special needs child, you still, I tell moms that guilt comes with the fertilized egg. It's just, <laughs> it's just built into the system and you're going to feel guilty over something at some point throughout your motherhood. And um, so I think that realizing that, that it's not unusual to feel guilty um, that you're not alone in feeling guilty, that it's sort of normal, that that sort of relieves you um, that, okay, I'm feeling guilty about this. Let's see what I can do about it. Is there something I can do that I'm not doing? If there's not, then I need to stop feeling guilty about that because there's not yeah. anything I can do. If there is something I can do, do it. If there's not, then I can't feel guilty about it. It's interesting. We turn to Psalm 139. Mm. I do. And remember that my identity is established in Christ. He knows me from day one yes. and before the creation of the world. And when things are going well, it's easy to think, oh, I'm just such a great parent. <laughs> and when they're not, then it's something's wrong when he is sovereign and he's not surprised by what's happening. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So what happened when Ron said, we need to probably look at some things and you both went to the doctor. I remember reading in the book, this was a very pivotal point mm -hmm. that is hard to even talk about to this day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I finally got a doctor when Daniel was almost three to um, agree with me, at least that there was something wrong. He didn't say what it was or give me even any indication, but he agreed that, okay, we can start with something. So we started with a hearing test just to make sure he was hearing well. And I knew he was, I knew he could hear because he followed directions. He could do everything I, you know, asked him to do, or um, he acted like he could hear me, but he just wasn't talking at almost three years old. So um, that kind of started me on the, the medical path of, of um, our diagnosis. And, um, but it really wasn't until he was in kindergarten that Ron, even though he had been totally supportive and with me on this, but it became his battle as well. When uh, Daniel was in kindergarten and we finally had him tested through a Scottish Rite Hospital, Mm -hmm. And the testing came back terrible. It was, you know, basically the test said he was educably mentally retarded. And those were the exact words. And the, the woman even had tears in her eyes telling me that because she knew that wasn't really a, a true diagnosis of Daniel because you could look at him and tell that wasn't. But because he didn't test well, that was what they had to give him. Which that is so often the case is they do not test well because their expressive and receptive language skills are so spread. Yes. How, however, back then they didn't know that. They, yeah. So they, um, they sent those scores to the school where he was attending. And of course the administration was like, there's no way he can go to school here. And um, it was a private Christian school. So that really, it really hurt our feelings. Um, it would have hurt our feelings no matter what school it was, but because we knew them and our other son was there and 
we it just it hurt our feelings and when the administrator told Ron in a private meeting just between the two of them that Daniel just didn't have the gray matter to attend that school that's when the the papa bear came out in Ron and um you know when when he reduced our son to gray matter it just it just weld something up inside of, of Ron to say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do this. Whatever it takes, we are gonna work work this out. And neither of us knew what that was gonna be, but we had a week to find a place for Daniel to go to school. So, you know, we just began and Ron Ron told me at that time, he said, I don't care where you have to go, what you have to do, we're if we have to spend every dime we have on um, helping Daniel be the best that he can be. We never said to heal Daniel or to uh, make him perfect or any of those things. I I don't think maybe God just kept that out of our minds. I don't know, but uh, we just wanted him to be all that he could be and um, whatever that was. So we, um, we just set out on that journey at that time and just became like little bulldogs on it. Which knowing both of you, I bet it was <laughs> like little bulldogs. <laughs> um, that is that is a very direct statement and it's a label. Yes. And to this day, we tend to define people by labels, yes. which drives me nuts. Yes. And I'm sure it was driving you nuts. But for a while without the internet, which is probably a blessing. Yes. Were you chasing a diagnosis? Were you trying to get an answer? Were you, did you put the frustration in a direction that appeared good, but yet was covering some grief? Yes. Um, we were referred to a neurologist. Um, we went to a, a child neurologist and um, they did all kinds of testing and and basically came back with the diagnosis. Again, the word autism was not mentioned. Um, PDD-NOS. Yeah. Pervasive Developmental Disorder, not otherwise specified. Which means we have no idea. We have no clue exactly. what's wrong. Exactly. Something's wrong. We have no idea what's wrong with your child. Take him home and see ya. It was yeah. just, it felt like- You want to just say, just say, I don't know. Yes. Yes, you might as well put I-D-K, I don't know, (laughs) that could be his label. Um, So, you know, it was very frustrating because it's like going to the doctor and you feel terrible, you've got all these symptoms and they say, well, it's just a virus, we can't do anything about it. So that's what I felt like they had just told me, it's just a virus, we can't do anything about it. And they, they told me all the things at that meeting. I can remember sitting there looking at that doctor and while he told me, okay, don't expect him to, you know, ride a bike or uh, roller skate or, you know, do any of the kind of childhood things that kids do. And, um, you know, that sort of, I don't know, silent uh, determination in me was, was welling up. And so while I was shaking my head up and down at the doctor, Inside, I was going, no. Yeah. Oh, no, don't you tell me that. Don't tell me that. <laughs> and so the first thing we did was went out and bought a bicycle. And uh, we just put that bicycle train wheels up on bricks and made our own stationary bike. And we pedaled and pedaled and pedaled until he 
learn to pedal and then, you know, put it on the ground and he learned to ride a bike. And um, not only did he learn to roller skate, but he was on a roller hockey team, um, you know, a few years later. So uh, we just, we just didn't take no for an answer. It didn't, I wasn't afraid for him to fail, but I wasn't going to not try just because he might fail. Yes. Okay. So that leads me into a study that I did because there are so many times where we try as parents to do so many things with our children and the repeated negative reinforcement of they're not talking, they're not walking, they're not turning over, they're not progressing. The term is learned helplessness. And in my studies, which it would have been a very popular belief at that time because we were very much into behavioral psychology and like Pavlov's dog and all that. Let me open up my little page here. But the learned helplessness that came from like B.F. Skinner, Watson, Pavlov was the person begins to feel they have no control over their lives or their situation, which of course that's part of all of this experience. And um, the associated emotions are depression, anxiety, phobias, loneliness, passivity, giving up, procrastination, which was interesting, decreased problem-solving ability, frustration, and low self-esteem, which is so easy for us to fall into. Well, that then, fast forward these 25 years later, if he was at a kindergarten age, now they're saying, well, there's positive psychology and the it's beginning to emerge as a behavior. Let's not look at a person's abnormal stuff or even consider it abnormal. Let's look at this as how behaviorally can we direct this, this focus, this skill development, what will it take? And the researchers are finding out from this that when one takes on that attitude, there's happiness, optimism, character strengths, grown resilience, positive thinking, um, and it actually lowers stress, raises a lifespan or makes it longer. There's lower rates of depression, increased resistance to the common cold, and develop coping skills. So what you're telling me is you didn't believe in the psychology of that time. You said, I'm going to be a little bit smarter. Your name should be on this probably. <laughs> As Lisa Simmons also writes in positive behavioral psychology or cognitive psychology, that it's, it, let's take this positively. Don't tell me what he can't. Let's talk about what he can do. And so you went in that direction. What then did that turn into? Well, you know, again, for us, we weren't looking for um, perfection or some, you know, we just were, were looking to see what, what we can do, like you said. And um, I believe that it gave Daniel a sense of um, independence, that, that he could do some things by himself. Um, he's, he never has been afraid to try new things. It's never, um, things, things don't scare him, um, unless it's academic. <laughs> well, academics can scare me it's, at times, so that's fine. <laughs> um, he didn't really like the academic part, but, um, anything else, you know, just 
um, we just took him along wherever we went, whatever the rest of the family was doing, whatever, even things that weren't, I would say, um, age appropriate for him. Like we, we had a business when he was little and that we, we would take him on business meetings with us. And so I had a, a Sunday school teacher one time who said, you're not raising children, you're raising adults. So I wanted to, I knew that um, making friends, you know, for, for Daniel, um, age-related friends was not easy. Mm-hmm. But I knew that he was going to be an adult a lot longer. So mm-hmm. I wanted him to learn adult relationship skills. So we took him on business meetings. We took him to business conferences, you know, when he was 9, 10, 11 years old. And um, he just felt totally comfortable with uh, being around adults. And I so think he's that, higher functioning. Yeah. Yes, he is high functioning. He just he enjoyed it and he enjoyed the positive you know, adults were nicer to him than a lot of kids were. So that encouraged him. So anyway, we we uh, did things like that to um, to encourage him, and, and he enjoyed that. Where were you all spiritually? How did all of this affect your relationship with the Lord? Was there anger? Was there, you screwed up my life? Where were you on that? You know, I don't remember being angry with God. I think sometimes I ignored him. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, <laughs> I thought, um, okay, God, you gave this to me. I got it. You know, see ya. And then when I would get in a pickle, then I would go, oh yeah, I probably need to pray about this. <laughs> so, um, but I don't remember being angry that God gave me this plight, you know, and I'm so, uh, downtrodden. I, I, I don't remember feeling that way. Maybe there were days, um, but it, I don't recall that being a big thing. Well, you were consumed with a positive direction. So you didn't really have time to focus on being helpless. Right. You were hopeful. Right. And and I think sometimes we can get, you know, ign- we ignore God and thinking that we're not being helpless. So that's, if I rely on God, then I'm being helpless. And really, it's the total opposite. And um, so I had to learn that, you know, like I said, I would go through those phases where, okay, I got it. Let's go. And then, you know, go back to God when I fail or. (laughs) Right. Now, from all of this, you pulled together an acronym HOPE. Yes. Which is incredibly powerful as I read it. And I would love for you to talk about that because. The bottom line is in life, we all need hope. Our lives are going to get turned upside down at some point for whatever reason. It may not be the child. It could be the divorce or an accident or a job loss or whatever. But hope, what does that mean? Well, you know, a lot of times we we equate success with hope. We hope for success. And what, what we had to do was redefine success. And I happened to find this little plaque that I um, hung in Daniel's room. It said, if at first you don't succeed, redefine success. <laughs> I love that. And so I thought that is so great because your success and my success are totally different. And your child's success and another child's success 
are totally different. So, and it's not what the world defines. It it may totally not be what the world defines. So I sort of came up with the, this, um, acrostic for hope. Um, you know, it's hope the H is for when your head and your heart merge. And so, um, you know, you have to, I knew in my head that something or my heart, that something was wrong with Daniel in the beginning. But when a doctor finally agreed with me, then it became head knowledge as well. And so when those two things uh, merge and you can put your heart and your head together, I think that gives you hope. And you can say those things out loud. Like, you know, I said in the beginning that as long as I kept it inside and didn't say it out loud, then maybe it wasn't true. But once it's said out loud and you still have your heart in it, then you have hope. Um, The O is for when opportunity and organization converge. Okay, say that again. Opportunity Opportunity and organization converge. Organization, personal organization or organizations, group organizations? I think it's when God's organization. It's when... (laughs) You're more spiritual than I am. It's the thing that God has been organizing or orchestrating, I guess it might be a better word, um, throughout your life. And that each of us, you know, I was a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, I only taught for two years, but I had been trained. I went to school, got a degree in elementary education. And even though I thought many times that maybe I had wasted all of that education in college and all that stuff, it, it became very apparent that um, I needed that. Now, that's not to say that if you aren't a teacher or haven't been trained as a teacher that you can't help your child. It's just what God used for me. Um, I have two friends whose sons are on the autism spectrum. They were, in, they were businessmen. One was an IT specialist, one was in HR. But when they realized that they needed to help their sons they came together and started a school for adults on the spectrum to teach them how to create games and apps. And, uh, and yeah, non-parallel. Non-parallel yes. institute. So yes. phenomenal. It's great. That, that's what God used in them to um, that organization to, um, to create something for their sons and for many, many others. So I think that that's what I mean by, um, you know, the opportunity and the organization coming together. And then the P is when plans and preparation surge. So when you, that's when you, you've worked and worked on something, maybe it's, you're trying to get them to just chew with their mouth closed, you know, <laughs> that would be, that would be huge. Um, or say a three word sentence and just, instead of just, you know, one word. And when that happens, wow, your, your surge of hope just goes through the roof, even though it may be short lived. Maybe, you know, just getting them to say a three-word sentence, now you realize, oh, goodness, now I've gotta, we got to go to four words. You know, and you can dwell on that, or you can dwell on, oh, wow, we said three words in a row. That makes sense. And so um, I think when your plans and your preparation, all the work you've been doing surge and they, they come together, that gives us hope. And the E um, is in when what you envision and the end result diverge. So when they're different, and that sounds like that would bring us 
no hope that would make us sad you have to again you're redefining success so yes. if if the end result and what you envisioned the result to be are different you're learning that um your focus has to be on who god created your child to be and not what you are trying to make your child be or want your child to be that's when you have hope and you you can take away that guilt that oh my goodness i'm not my child is not turning out like I, you know, all the ducks I had in a row have swam off. Well, guess what? Those ducks weren't gods anyway. They were. So it, they needed to swim off. That's right. So, um, you know, I think that can give us hope. And when we realize yes. that it's not about us, it's yes. not about me. It's about this child and God's purpose for him. And God always wants us to showcase himself. And so when our child and our attitude and our actions showcase God, then we are successful. Yeah. In other words, you're talking about living congruently. I mean, putting your head and your heart together. When those are, when those are together, when you are looking at opportunities and organizations, and then I got to remember this, the P is the purposes and the plans. And then E, when I'm going to sum it up as a change of expectation. My dad's always said, if you lower expectations, you will never be disappointed. Not that we won't have them, but when we change or get ourselves out of the way and allow God to define who he's already made anyways, then we are stewards of this child rather than wanting to showcase them or whatever that would be. Yes. What do you say, Lisa, to the person who doesn't have a high-functioning child or who has a child with a different diagnosis or is in a condition that is really hard? Mm, Yes. You know, my heart goes out to them because I know, in, in relatively speaking, I had it easy. Um, because Daniel was high functioning. Um, but I still believe in that we are showcasing God. We are not showcasing our success with our child or even the success of our child. Don't you get sick of that? I get so tired of that. Yeah. (laughs) Your child is not all, I mean, you aren't, your child's not all about you. Your child is your child. Let them be separate. Right. But we do that as, as parents, moms and dads. We, we let our behavior, and this is with our um, typical children as well, that their behavior reflects on us. If they're throwing a fit, that means we're a bad mother. If they, you know, get caught up in, you know, teenage uh, mischief, then that's because we did something. And Um, I, I heard, I believe it was James Dobson say one time, um, you can't take all the credit and you can't take all the blame. Absolutely. And so that really helped me, um, in, in, um, sort of releasing some of that, that guilt. But, you know, for parents, my, my neighbor across the street has twins. One is neurotypical and one is pretty, um, severely autistic and she homeschools one, the other one goes to a private school. And she, even though in this day of, of great 
you know, internet, social uh, media, and, and those kinds of things, and even all the information and everything around, she still is isolated, and she feels lonely, and um, it's, it's very, very sad that we have that, and I think if I could say anything to other parents who maybe don't have a child on the spectrum or, or any other special needs ch child, that um, if they could just reach out, you know, just be a friend, teach your children how to be friends with someone who is different than them. It yeah. will serve them so much greater in their adult life if they just learn to um, embrace people who are different. It, it's, yeah. it's difficult to do, I understand. But what we have to do that um, it, because we're all part of, of the um, body of Christ. So we have to embrace the whole body. Yes, and you almost want to say um, the information out there is not just for parents with non-typical children. The information out there, like with Autism Society of America, is phenomenal for typical people. In fact, my son is a part of a social group we just started. And he's on the lower end of functioning with the group. Um, and I asked the director, would it be helpful if I gave them information about my son and taught them, because parents would need to step up and be part of the education process. And he goes, that would be fantastic. Because sometimes when a typical person always serves someone in need, there is an incredible um, feeling of self-esteem boost and confidence and honor to the Lord. Yes, and, and most, uh, most of um, the reactions that you may get from, from people who um, don't understand autism or any other special needs, it, it's fear that comes yes. out as rejection. And really all they need is information to see yes. that your son, that my son are people. They may not act like they feel the same thing, but they do. And they may present it differently, um, but they do get their feelings hurt. They do want friends desperately. And they do know when you think they're weird. Yes. <laughs> I know mine does, uh, yes. you know, yeah. and it's very sad. Yes. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, I, Lisa, I love that part about the Christian community really reaching out because it's not hard to reach out. You just need to um, try and say, how can I help? Start there. One of the things that I loved in your book, and it's one of your writings, it's a poem that um, I hope I can get through, which is the title of your book. I would have said yes. And then as we come to a close, oh, I also want to ask about Ron's work, but this poem said, what if God asked our permission to give us a child whom he had commissioned to be our child to have and to hold to teach his ways as they grow old? Knowing your child as you know him or her, would you have said yes if God had conferred? The child I give is a little boy who looks like you. Is he your choice? When he screams in the car, will you still be glad, though nothing quiets this boy that you've had? When they look in your eyes, saying, he, 
why do you have to write this? <laughs> you can't achieve will you say yes will you still believe his smile will bring joy his demeanor of pleasure this boy you raise is my greatest treasure so i'll ask you once more will you have what it takes to never give up even when your heart breaks will you teach him my ways and be there for him Will you show him my love when your patience wears thin? Will you do all of this? And I can't see my tears. Will you do all of this and in definite time, knowing all along that he is mine? I would have said yes. And is that true, Lisa? It is, and I, I know that it's easy to say that now because he's 30 years old and we've come through so much. And and when I wrote that poem, he was um, 18. So um, he was about to graduate from high school, and we were so um, amazed at that. And, um, you know, I, at that time, I just reflected back on, on all the things that we had um, come through and um, just amazing at God's graciousness in giving me this child um, to teach me to see God. And, you know, I'm not trying to be like, oh, I'm so holy and awesome. Uh, I just, I was a weak mom, just like we all are. And I failed and I, uh, I messed up and I screamed at him when I shouldn't have. And I, you know, I did those all those things, but um, I, when I look at Daniel, I see who God is, and I see his mercy in um, helping me to quit being so selfish, and, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not ever going to be there 100%, but it definitely took so much focus off me and my perfect mom um, attitude toward myself um, and put it on him. Because really they are all of God's. We are his children. Yes. And whether they are, and we, re, we do need to redefine success. Well, as you have been a part of our talk in this wonderful time with Lisa, there may have been some things that were brought up. Maybe you are in a place of hopelessness or even have been living in a learned hopeless state. And I want you to know there is so much more hope out there, as Lisa talked about. Any last words that you have, Lisa, as we close our time? I just want parents to know that um, you have been chosen specifically mm. by God. And you may not feel like that was an honor <laughs> at this moment, but it is because he saw something in you. In fact, he created something in you to be the mom, to be the dad of this child. And you have to own that. You have to accept that and, and, and say, okay, I've been chosen. I'm the one and, um, and take ownership of it. And um, you know, God will bless every effort that you put in. I love that, that you have been chosen, take ownership of it and go with it. Right. Um, Lisa, thanks again. I appreciate your time. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Colleen.
You can find the show notes and referenced resources in the podcast description or on our website, reframingministries.com. If you were impacted by today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you rated and reviewed the podcast, shared it on your social media, or share it with some friends who you think would be touched. You can email me personally at reframingministries at insight.org. If you'd like to be updated on Reframing's activities and content, please feel free to subscribe on our website. Thank you again for joining us today at Reframing Ministries. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know in the comments on our website. Our desire is to provide biblical help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through unique and challenging segments in life. And in order to provide for more people, we love your support through prayer, sharing this content with friends, and partnered support. Reframing Ministries and Insight for Living Ministries operate entirely and only on your generous gifts and donations. You can partner with us and donate to Reframing Ministries through our website. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.